I'd like to ask you a real question, a question I'd like a response to for a moment. What was a favorite story of yours when you were a child? The Jungle Book. Very good. Thank you, Micah. Others? Sorry? The Three Bears. Goldilocks and the Three Bears? Right. What else? Ferdinand. What else? Very Sam loved the very hungry caterpillar. Where the Where oh that's yeah. Love Shell Silverstein. Yeah. Many many stories, if you enjoy whether you enjoyed fairy tales and their Disney renditions like Cinderella, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, or the if you're a fan of high adventure like The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, or Maybe you, whether you imagine yourself as Luke Skywalker battling the dark side of the Force, uh, these tales, except maybe for the exception of the very hungry caterpillar, have one thing in common. They ended, well, that one ends happily too. Yeah, that ends, yeah, he becomes a beautiful butterfly. That's right, that's right. They ended happily. Cinderella and Snow White ended up with their respective princes, though one wonders what it was like the day after the wedding. <laughs> what comes after happily ever after, you know? Uh, Frodo destroys the ring and leaves Middle Earth with the elves to be followed later by his faithful companion, Sam. And Luke brings balance to the Force by redeeming his father. But we know that real life doesn't always have a happy ending. People can and do die suddenly or cruelly. They can suffer from prolonged or terminal illness. Families can be left behind. Relationships can be broken. The world is filled with heartache and tragedy. And Luke, the author of Acts, knows it. Luke had several opportunities to end his saga with a happy ending. He could have ended it at his gospel. End of volume one, they go out praising, glorifying God for all they had seen. The end. Nope, it continues on. And then after, you know, the gospel goes to Gentiles, after the Cornelius story that we heard last week, Luke could have ended it with Acts 11.18, maybe a little short quota after that. Uh, and they praised God, then God has given even the Gentiles the repentance that leads to eternal life. Amen. End of story. You could say some, something also about how after many sufferings, Paul brought the gospel to Rome and how it continues to be proclaimed today throughout the world. But that's not what Luke does. Luke writes with candor about the difficulties and disasters of Paul and Barnabas' mission. Starts well enough. They're commissioned by the church at Antioch to share the gospel in Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, and Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. The Spirit explicitly calls Paul and Barnabas to this work with an actual voice. The church responds with prayer, fasting, and laying on of hands on, on Paul and Barnabas to commission them. 
They go out with the love and support of a truly diverse church. You notice who's there? Simeon is called Niger, or in modern English, the black one. Lucius is a Roman name. It's Latin. Menaean is a childhood friend of the infamous Herod Antipas. So you have all kinds of people in this early church at Antioch. However, things go off the rails pretty quickly. Paul and Barnabas are driven out of two cities by the time they arrive in Lystra. We've heard the story. We've heard it already. Paul sees uh, that a man has faith to be healed. What exactly this means is not explained. Uh, But perhaps it simply means that he's open to God's healing work in him. We shouldn't take it as a scientific statement or a statement of merit, as if he had enough faith in, uh, in, a, uh, in a reservoir to deserve or merit healing. That's certainly not what Luke means by this. It simply may mean that while listening to Paul preach, he truly believes that God can heal him if God desires to. Paul invites him to stand up, and this is where things go terribly wrong. You see, Paul and Barnabas didn't read the room. They didn't realize that in healing this man, they would call to mind an ancient legend in which Zeus and Hermes visited a city like Lystra in disguise, and when no one showed hospitality, they destroyed the city. So, the townsfolk were determined to not let anything like that happen again. If the gods decided to visit, they would be ready. Yet, they're not all that far off in another way. Paul and Barnabas are not themselves gods, of course, but they do proclaim that God, the one true God, has indeed come to earth in human form. And not merely in human form, but as a flesh and blood human being. One who was born, who lived, taught, preached, fed, and healed among human beings. And who suffered, died, and was raised among human beings. And his power to heal is still active in the world. Death cannot destroy the power of life. Paul and Barnabas stop the people from offering sacrifices to them, but they soon have another problem. The opposition followed them from the last city they were thrown out of. This this is a recurring theme in Acts, where Paul and Barnabas will make enemies in one city and they'll follow them from place to place. And this happens here too. The crowds, so adoring one moment, become murderous the next. Does this sound familiar? It should. It sounds a lot like what happens during Holy Week. The crowds, so adoring on Sunday, turn murderous on Friday. Paul narrowly avoids death. What Jesus said to Ananias at Paul's commissioning is coming true. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We might be tempted to think that in any universe run by a good God, suffering and evil would be eradicated or at least mediated. By the way, that reminds me of that Shel Silverstein poem in Where the Sidewalk Ends, where the poet is invited to take the wheel of the world for a bit. 
But when he realizes just what a burden it is, God says, nope, I'm just going to take it right back. Perhaps we'd like to like a world where bad things happen to bad people, whoever we define as bad, of course, and good things happen to good people, whoever we define as good, of course. However, suffering is a given in the world we live in. Most of you know that far better than I do. And that suffering is often senseless. The stoning of Paul at Lystra was senseless. The stoning of Stephen back in Acts chapter 7 was senseless. MLK's assassination was senseless. The Holocaust was senseless. Cancer is senseless. Addiction is senseless. The ongoing deaths of children in this country due to violence is senseless. Much illness is senseless. But you know what? The Lord's death was senseless too. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus was the victim of a lynching brought about by the unholy union of religion and the state. There was no inherent meaning in Jesus' suffering and death. To all appearances, Jesus was just another first century Jew murdered by an empire determined to preserve its power at all costs, helped along by a religious apparatus and once adoring murderous crowds. But our Father's deep, abiding, indescribable love for us and for creation brings meaning out of the meaningless, sense out of the senseless. The cross, the place of God's deepest abandonment, becomes the place of God's deepest presence. There is God who takes on all our violence. There is God who carries the world's sin. There is God whose, whose arms remain open to the world despite the world's violent rejection of him. And there is God who does not respond wrathfully or vengefully, but mercifully. The judgment of God in Christ on the cross is forgiveness. You see, the cross is God's answer to the problem of suffering. Though suffering is still part of this fallen world, God is most profoundly present in suffering. We seldom get to choose our own crosses. But whether we sense him or not, whether we believe in him at that moment or not, whether we can sense any light in the darkness or not, God in Christ is still there. God in Christ is still there. Whether we perceive God there or not. We don't have... That is where God is found. God is in our deepest, darkest moments, bringing hope out of hopelessness, sense out of senselessness, and life out of death. We don't have to try and manufacture hope, sense, or life ourselves. God does that in God's own good time. That's God's job. Life is not a Disney movie. It is often strange, difficult, or absurd. 
But we Jesus followers can accept that in a way that the wider world often cannot. We're about to receive his body and blood here, broken and poured out for you, to forgive your sins, to give strength for your life. In Jesus and his seemingly senseless death, we have the most profound gift of life the world has ever known. Paul and Barnabas were given the gift of strengthening others with their sufferings, reminding the community, it is through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. May the Spirit likewise gift us. Amen.